0: Welcome to season two. We are so excited that you were patient with us, so that we could get this out to you just in time for the holidays. We have a very special episode where I am actually going to be sharing my story uh, publicly, kind of for the first time officially, and. It's truly an honor that I get to do it with each one of you that have loved us and supported us and you send comments and you let us know um, that you are learning something with each episode and that you're seeing more and more ways that you can help fight human trafficking in your neighborhood and in your community. So without further ado, welcome to season two of the Persons with Lived Experience podcast with Dixie and Zona.
1: This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take precautions for yourself. Thank you. Welcome to the Persons with Lived Experience podcast, inspiring stories for unprecedented times with Dixie
0: and Zona. My name is Zona, and I am a person with lived experience of homelessness and human trafficking. a. have uh, been working with Christian Influencer Inspired. I am a cereal foodie, and I love tiny houses.
1: And I'm Dixie. I'm all about joy, justice, and fair trade fashion. I'm an anti-trafficking advocate, a mom of many, and passionate worshiper. And today, our special guest is Zona. So this is going to be a very special episode of the podcast, and I'm excited um, a little more about Zona. Um, she has worked fighting trafficking in six states and three countries, as well as champion diversity, Equity and inclusion to give voice to persons with lived experience of human trafficking and exploitation and correlated events. Thank you, Zona, for sharing your story with us today. I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more and also being able to. Oh, no. Can you hear me? Okay. I bumped a thing, it flashed up. Okay. So, being able to, you know, your voice, being out there for more people to understand how this stuff happens and who it happens to and all the things. So, um, thank you for trusting me to host you today.
0: Go ahead and share your story. Well, thank you very much. Um, It's definitely... um, Like, I would say it's only really been very recently that I've been able to be out in the open and say, okay, this is who I am. This is what... um, My life experience is that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. this is all still (laughs) fairly new to me sharing this experience just because Mm -hmm. um, I've been fighting so long to reconcile with family members. So this will make more sense um, later on in the podcast. But I did want to let people know that People do things for a myriad of reasons and that doesn't mean that I haven't moved on and that I haven't been able to forgive and that is no shame on anybody that isn't able to do that or is in a situation where um, their experience is different. So my experience is very unique (laughs) in the fact that um, I'm not able to move away from my traffickers the same way other people would be. So um, my story actually kind of starts uh, after my parents' divorce when I think I was like two and a half or three, and uh, we had new family members, and in that process, we had um, a family member who had been part of some child sexual um, abuse Uh, and some materials that were created, and that child uh, enacted those things on me. So, um, from a very young age, I'd say there was some hypersexualization, because I had to, I did tell right away, and there was um, immediate action taken. It did change how... I kind of saw the world. So suddenly I was thrust into a lot of very adult conversations, having conversations that were definitely past the realm of a three-year-old and having to explain what had happened to me and seeing the consequences uh, for my family, how that affected relationships, how that affected power dynamics, um, different things that that kind of played into if that makes any sense. Um, so not only was I separated from, um, that person who had, um, abused me. And remember this person was about my age. So it, it was not like, uh, they knew what they were doing either.
1: Right.
0: They just didn't, they were doing what they knew to do. And, um, their parents had gotten them away from the person who had, sexually abused them as well so you have to understand there is action being taken in these situations but things still snowball. So what that means is um. At the time I was very much told like if you ever tell us anything we'll absolutely believe you. Um, We know that these things have happened and we'll definitely get help um like whatever it takes so counseling therapy family counseling all of the things that normally go into that but for me what happened was there was a lot of blame and a lot of shame because suddenly i had quote unquote blown up my family existence and now we had all these required meetings because of the court and we had to prove that i was like getting help but the counselors never really worked With me, it was more, um, like, what do you think you could do differently? And I'm like, I don't really even understand what happened, let alone understanding what I could do differently. Mm -hmm. But now I'm, like, hyper-responsible because now I have to protect, like, my younger siblings and different things like that. So... I don't have the full perspective of everything that happened because I was three, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But I remember being abused, and I remember struggling with a lot of, like, stomach aches, not knowing that that was anxiety, not understanding that that was, um, you know, feeling shame, feeling guilt. Uh, I really internalized how negatively this impacted my family. and where they were able to respond well and where they weren't able to respond well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that being said, that is a lot for any three-year-old to take in and into um, like elementary school, that sort of thing. Um, both my parents were remarried, we had lots of other uh, family members that were in and out of. The household, big families, uh really on both sides, and those are things that I love about my family. Um, but I did develop very young into looking much more mature, so my brain is very good at separating out. This podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of the supporters of bringfreedom.org. Through your support, through our Venmo at Bring Freedom, we are able to support the persons with lived experience who are brave enough to share their stories here and avoid re-traumatization by them having to give away their story or their services for free, while still maintaining these types of trainings, as well as the all for one challenge that we have coming up on November 18th and 19th, at no cost to you, in order to completely end human trafficking in your community. If you would like to be one of the supporters of BringFreedom.org, you can visit our website or you can make a tax-deductible donation to our Venmo at Bring Freedom. Thank you. Um, the things that were going on in my public life versus the things that were happening in my private life. So to the best of my understanding, it was sometime around age 10, somewhere between nine and 10, that, um, I was first assaulted, uh, by another family member. Um, this was an adult male this time. So it was not same gender. It was not like my age range or whatever. And I reacted immediately I immediately went to my mom, I immediately told her what was going on, and um, at first she believed me, and then um, this family member was like, I wouldn't do that, you should know me better than that, that would never happen, I'm not that kind of a guy, and it's like all of a sudden there was this realization that we were not prepared to make the necessary moves to um, escape the situation. So me being nine or 10 and being held as more responsible and being somebody that my mom did talk to me about all the decisions and I did know about, all of the finances and I did know about all of these different things and it was just very it was more than just one piece of the puzzle if that makes any sense yeah so um my stepdad struggled with um gambling and addiction problems of his own. Um, My mom had gotten free from a lot of addiction problems when she was a teen and had moved back into some of those things in our During the course of my childhood after some surgeries so before it was illegal drugs now it was um, prescription drugs, and it was very common right they were, you know, handing those babies out like candy, so um, it was not uncommon for people to be on pain meds and to be struggling with different things like that and. As a child, I didn't realize what was going on. I just knew that mom was sick a lot and that mom wasn't able to uh, take care of us and that my stepdad would say things like, um, well, your mom just isn't capable of um, handling this sort of stuff. So um, we just won't burden her because my mom had a lot of um, insomnia. She had you know, some just other things. I, I know now as an adult were, you know, symptoms of withdrawal and symptoms of anxiety and yeah. having a lot of um, stuff that she had had, uh, that she had experienced that, you know, if you haven't been able to react to your own experience, it's really hard to react to someone else's um, in a manner that's appropriate because, somebody else's situation will absolutely trigger, um, whatever is unhealed in yourself. Yeah. So I think because of the situation being so close and happening a second time and it being something that she wasn't able to protect me from, I think it spiraled into more and more mm-hmm. stuff that was going on. Yeah. So in this process, my mom had had You know carpal tunnel surgery and gallbladder surgery and all this stuff and all those things came with pain meds all of those things came with pain meds um so to the best of my understanding our house had already been gambled away once oh wow but i know that it was not an easy situation right um but i was also very aware of that situation even though i was very young So, what ended up happening is that my mom kind of went into her spiral where she didn't sleep, and she wasn't eating, and she wasn't really present, and she got very upset and very angry, and she was very, like, emotional, Um, and I was, you know, for better or worse, I was always kind of the steady person in the household Mm -hmm. and um, kind of keeping things even keeled, keeping things going, right? So now I wouldn't say that I was great at it because I was a child, but... That was the process that I was in was, how do I maintain a safe environment for my younger siblings? How do I make sure that they still have what they need? Because just because my life is ruined doesn't mean that their life needs to be ruined. So I did everything that I could to protect both of them from what was going on and from what uh, was being experienced so that they could have what I consider a normal childhood without all of the pressures of everything else we had to figure out. Yeah. Um, I know that they don't know what was going on up until a much later point. So, at the time, the uh, family member who was abusing me had other family members who were um, actively dealing drugs and were creating drugs and had um blown up houses creating certain types of drugs sure so um these things were very real to me trying to figure out like if i did get out where would i go right so i had my dad My dad was a completely separate situation, and um, he would be a safe place for me and my siblings that shared the same dad, but for my siblings that didn't share the same dad, I didn't have a safe place for them to go, and I didn't feel like it would be a good situation. So whether or not this was told to me, or if this was explained in no uncertain terms, or if it was something that actually was threatened to me, I I can't tell you. But what I do know is it was made very, very clear to me very early on because I had went to other safe adults and I said, hey, this is happening to me at home. Um, My mom isn't doing anything about it and it's happening. And I was told very clearly that I didn't understand what I was doing in that it would ruin this man's reputation and he is considered a good man and that um, I really needed to think long and hard before I came up with any lies like this. Oh, no. So from that point on, I was put in the light of being a troublemaker. Now, I need to let you know. I was a great student, a straight A student. I loved school. School was my favorite place in the world. I was in all the talented and gifted programs. I was advanced in every area except for spelling, which don't hold me to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, it really was my respite where I got to be as much of a kid as I ever did because I didn't get
1: Join us for the 10th annual Dress Embers Style Challenge. Advocacy is better together, and we would love to have you on Team Bring Freedom. Wear a dress or tie every day during the month of December to raise awareness and funds to end human trafficking. Check the description box for more information.
0: To be a kid at home. Right. Um, so when... All of a sudden, I was being branded as a liar, as somebody who makes up stories. I'm like, I've never been somebody that makes up stories. This has never been who I am. It really cut me to the core. So I had always been fairly outgoing, and I had been, like, I didn't really know a stranger, and I loved, like, helping new kids in the classroom and, like, being a part of all those things. Well, suddenly, I completely withdrew and it was to the point where if anybody even noticed me I I might burst out into tears mm-hmm. because being noticed became so um scary because I didn't know what was going to happen to me that um all attention was unwanted attention completely
1: sure
0: um so from the transition of being third grade to fifth grade it was a night and day personality difference, Mm -hmm. night and day. And I remember, um, I was in fifth grade, and my I had my first male teacher ever, and he was like, you you need to be on the math late. He's like, you're, you're great at this. He's like, we definitely need you on the team. We need you to compete, um, but the practices were before school, and I remember like I had tried to work it out, but I couldn't get my sibling to daycare early enough to be able to get to school, and I kept telling him like, I can't do it. Like, I can't get I can't get us all here and be here for this thing because i'd have to wake up my siblings that much earlier and it was just a lot and so i really did try everything i could um but from that point on he was like well he was looking for absolutely anything that he could do for me to um kind of be punished for not being able to work out being able to be at school early for mathletes and, um, he ended up failing me sorry, well,
1: just I just think it's interesting that he's putting that on you mm-hmm. instead of reaching out to a parent.
0: Well, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if he did reach out to a parent, but i I remember okay. trying to work out like would that be possible, but my mom struggled so much with. You know, insomnia that it was like really not something she was able to commit to getting up early. And as it was, I was already kind of the one leading, getting breakfasts and getting kids out and out the door and making sure they had things that it was like, I just didn't have the extra bandwidth to get it done. And I internalized that disappointment so heavily because at that point I had already been starting to be told, oh, well, you're a liar and you're this and you're that. So even any of these good accolades that I was getting at school um, just felt like more pressure and felt like another way that I was going to fail. They were going to find out that I wasn't who they thought I was and that um, I was going to be exposed as this, you know, farce of a person who's really a liar and all these things because that's what I was being told at home. Yeah. So um I I just I really, really, really struggled with that. Um so then
1: to punish you. Yeah. So
0: uh since he wasn't able to fail me in math because my grades were really good, he was also my teacher in handwriting and he actually failed me in handwriting. And I remember I just bawled. I got in so much trouble for that F because I was not an F student and because that wasn't how I reacted to things. And I was like, I had very good penmanship and it just was like, and I felt that failure so heavily in my life. And it just kind of mixed with the shame and the guilt of what I was already facing at home. And um, it actually pushed me into uh, an eating disorder.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: So all of a sudden, since I couldn't control all of these other things that were happening at home and now things that were happening at school, which was my safe place before, um, I moved into trying to control what I ate and things like that. Now, I know that this isn't the same for everybody, but um, my older brother, who is much older and really just... um, truly an amazing person in my life not everybody has a great older brother but I have a great older brother and um he really loved me and my baby sister because my youngest brother wasn't born yet so um he he walked in the door after not seeing me for several years and was like you're anorexic and you need to stop it right now and just being seen and And having that thing called out was enough for me to be able to get out of it. That's awesome. I know that that's not the case for a lot of people, yeah. but I'm grateful that it was my case. so um because there's a lot that goes into eating disorders, and it it does a lot of damage on the body, um, not unlike the other things. So moving oh, no. forward, I my mom, for the time I was probably 12 or 13, all of a sudden started having me go to therapists faithfully. So she would pull me out of school. I was struggling with migraines. I probably had um, 20 migraines, 25 migraines a semester easily. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I had so many migraines and I mean, light sensitive, sound sensitive, all the things, which now I understand is probably my anxiety. Yeah um that I was really not able to function they almost failed me out of sixth grade even though I was the top of my class so it was me and one other kid that were vying for top of the class and um I was gone all the time but all my work was done all my homework was turned in I never missed a deadline but I definitely struggled with getting to school or being at school sure Um, So all these things, you know, they kind of snowball on top of each other. And because I uh, then was having I, they decided not to hold me back because my grades were too high for them to hold me back. But I suddenly had to go to this like delinquent class with kids that were, you know, actually doing drugs and were, you know, girls that had gotten pregnant in middle school and things like that. And they're like, what are you in for? And I'm like, migraines yeah, <laughs> uh. and they're like you know so they're teaching us like study skills and I'm like I know how to study and they're like you have to do your homework I'm like I do my homework my homework is done so it's just this crazy like dichotomy of like I really was this like great student and I was very nerdy and I read all the time and I was very much like you know responsible at home and and I had all of these things that were like just task list just done right very responsible but the but the feedback I was getting from all these adults in my life was you're a liar and you're you can't be counted on and you don't show up like you're supposed to and I'm like I'm doing everything I can yeah so uh it got very stressful holding those two things so um in the process of that I am a very spiritual person, so I was praying, and I was like, Lord, I need a church. We would church hopped, my parents were divorced, this was in the 90s, and in the 90s, it was very common in the church that if your parents were divorced, that you, as a child, of divorce were the spawn of Satan. So I remember going to churches where they would tell us that they couldn't be friends with us as kids because our parents were divorced and it was catching, and if they became our friend, their parents would get divorced too. That's so sad. So, like, we never stayed in churches, but, like, I very much had a relationship with Jesus personally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I was like, okay, Lord, what church do you want me to go to? And I went to this youth group, and it was amazing. So, I got there, and they had a greeting team. And I had not one, but two people come up to me and they're like, hi, my name is, what's your name? Uh, Come sit with me. And I wasn't alone. And I mean, we were some rough kids, but we were there for each other. Awesome. And um the youth pastor at the time saw these leadership gifts in me that were that were recognized at first at school and then weren't being recognized now because now they were seeing ways that I was, you know, having migraines and different things like that. Um, but he definitely was like, We want you on the leadership team. We know that you love Jesus. Like we want you to be um leading things in youth. So there was a team of us, it was a group. Of everything. So, um, I was in sixth grade and in leadership in this youth group where we would lead a little devotional, lead some of worship, like things like that. And as silly as that was, it was so transformative because my experience with Jesus was very loving and very much like He was taking care of me and He was providing, like, helping me know what to do in situations and and stuff like that and i had that validated externally through this um amazing uh, pastor and Mm -hmm. i ended up gaining some best friends for the Mm -hmm. first time they were also in church and just really um a very healthy good situation for me Mm -hmm. so um that pastor, for family reasons, was only there for one year. So if I would have waited just a little bit longer, I would have completely missed that experience. But the Lord knew exactly what I needed at the time. That I needed. So um, moving forward, um, I was in a lot of therapy sessions. Because my mom had started this thing where she was, she would go to the therapy and she would say, um, Zona is depressed and she needs to be put on antidepressants or she needs to be on um, mood stabilizers or things like that. So she was going on my behalf and seeking meds, hmm. which essentially the effect of was to drug me up so that well. I wasn't. Opposing what was happening. Um, I was very aware that. We were not able to get out of the situation and in order to keep a roof over our heads, that this was kind of the expectation that said person would have access to me. And if they did, then we would continue to have a home. Oh, I see. So when I was a kid, I was like, oh, well, this is just child abuse and, you know, people are crappy people anyway. So, I mean, what what else would you expect? I was fairly cynical. <laughs> um, and I was a, a tiny adult, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, from a very young age. And a cynical one at that. So, what I found out was about the age of 14 was that I didn't have to take the meds that I was being shoved because they changed my meds all the time. Well, every time they changed my meds, I gained weight. Oh, sure. So, I went from being about 115 pounds with a very curvy body. To all of a sudden being almost two hundred pounds because of the different meds that they kept putting me on, and it was like mm-hmm. more and more and more so after that the I guess it was kind of explained to me that their thought process was I gained, then um, I would be less attractive to said person, and maybe they'd move on, which didn't happen, but also what didn't happen is that I wasn't able to lose the weight either
1: right
0: so that has led to other things that have been lovely in my life so about the age of 14 i realized i didn't have to continue to take the meds and um so i would spit them out later i would find ways to get rid of them um and all of a sudden it's like i had more clarity again I had more whatever because whatever they had me on I was like a zombie like I had Mm. no fight in me I had no um I had no way to fight back at all and like I would lose days at a time
1: Mm.
0: which I didn't realize until later but it's like that season of my life was really a blur yeah it was really a blur but even if the abuse wasn't happening, I was having nightmares about the abuse. So I struggled with sleeping then too. And then all of these meds that I suddenly had stopped taking, I was having withdrawal symptoms from. Um, so I just, I I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the drugged thing anymore. It, it was not for me, that's for sure. So... Um, I had been drugged to all these different therapists. I had finally put my foot down when I was about 16 and I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to another therapist. They aren't listening to me. They aren't helping me. They aren't giving me any skills to deal with what's going on in my actual life. Um, You know, my mom would sit in these sessions so that I didn't tell anybody what was actually going on so that we wouldn't have anybody taken away. Um, so there wasn't like there, it was a safe place for me. I had to go and put on an act where they were telling me that, oh, you're suicidal. And I was like, I'm not suicidal. I was like, I've never been suicidal, maybe homicidal to a specific person, but I have never been suicidal in my life. I said, I have a lot to live for and I have children that I am protecting. I can't go anywhere because I'm not leaving this to them. Mm -hmm. And they were like. Just the concept of that was like completely outside of what they had decided for me. So at 16, my mom started taking me to our pastor's wife. And I did the same rigmarole where I'm expected to say that I'm suicidal and I'm depressed and all these things and whatever. And I remember my pastor's wife looked at me. We had maybe, maybe been working together for like three weeks. And she goes, I know what's happening to you. And I know the truth. Are you going to tell me the truth or not? And I said, this is what's happening to me. And she goes, I know. I'm going to give your mom three weeks to get out of the house. And if not, I'm going to call Child Protective Services and we're going to have you removed. Yeah. I remember how grateful I was to finally be free from that situation, and I was so hopeful, so at the time, they had arranged an elder in the church to um, take care of us kids, so we were all out of the house until arrangements could be made, and um, things transitioned, but what they didn't tell us was that the family member was just being moved out to their car in the driveway, Oh, so... We were told we were going to be safe now. And at that point, it was right around the time where um, my niece yeah. who was coming to stay with us was about the age where I started being assaulted. Yeah. And I had to tell my brother that he couldn't have his kids there anymore because yeah. I was like, I can't protect her and the other kids in the household, and I can't have this happen to her, so she can't be here anymore. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, this is what's happening to me, and I I can't get out. So um, that caused a lot more issues with my mom, because that was the reason that they, they broke ties. So again, I was blamed for that too. Causing rifts in the family and all kinds of stuff. So it just was a very intricate web of no matter what happens, I'm always the bad guy. So I say all those things to say um, at that point, my mom became more unstable. She did get a job, she did start kind of getting on her feet a little bit, but never quite fully. Um, and the person who had abused me still had access to me, full key to the house, the whole thing. So it was just like this whole mess of stuff. And then, um, my senior year of high school, my lifeline, who is my grandma, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So I was taking care of her. I had moved into her house to take care of her and um, protect everything going on with the family. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't know what to do. She was kind of my person. And grandma knew what had happened to me. And she had explained to me very young, she was like, this is just the way of men. This is just what happens. Um, She had been adopted when she was very young. And when her adopted mom had passed on, her adopted dad had started um, doing the same thing to her. Mm -hmm. So she had finally gotten away after he had remarried and the new wife said, you can't keep this girl here because I know what's going on. So instead of taking care of her, they just kicked her out. So it was very much generational. It was very much something that they they were aware of, but just didn't know through their own issues um, any other way besides how we were handling it. So for them, this was handling it better than any of them had ever had it. So this was progress, right? Um, So... When my grandma died before well, she was in the hospital before she died, um, my mom and my sister had a really, really bad fight. And it was one of those things where it was like, I know if I don't get my sister out of this house that my mom is going to kill her. And um, my sister had run away and I called my dad and I was like, dad, if you do not get her stuff tonight and go pick her up, I was like, I will never forgive you if she dies, So bless his heart, my dad showed up and he packed everybody up and, you know, got her uh, away from my mom. So she was safe, but for the first time in my life, I was facing everything alone. And I had always had her with me. We'd always been in the same school. We'd all, we were very close. Like we ate breakfast together every day. We ate lunch together every day. Like my sister was literally my very best friend. Yeah and even though i didn't tell her everything that was going on with me because i wanted her to be protected from that um she had her own situations that were going on that was not the same as mine but definitely still verbally abusive more physically abusive that sort of thing so um for the first time i didn't have my counterpart there with me for everything Mm. and i was like i don't even know how to function without having this person there. So, um, right before I graduated, I went to spend the night at a friend's house and my mom got very upset because she knew that I was going to move to the West Coast. And she was like, if you can be out of the house now, you can just be out of the house for good and kick me out of the house. So I ended up graduating, um, from, sleeping on a couch at a friend's house. And they ended up taking me in until my um, program started that I was going to be going to um, in the fall for school. So um, I got out very unexpectedly. I didn't really know what to do with that. Uh, My mom cut all ties to my younger brother, who I was his main caretaker, and I didn't know how to function. So that was very difficult. Um, I'd never been on my own. I'd never been personally responsible just for myself. I didn't know what to do with myself. I had way too much time on my hands um, because I'd always been responsible. So here I was, 18 years old, graduated from high school across the country by myself and an empty nester for the first time. And I was like, I need more activities. That's what I need. (laughs) So um, I was able to get into a program that is a Christian program that I knew that I was there to forgive what had happened in my childhood. And I had made a decision where I was like, I am going to forgive because I am not going to be a victim my whole life. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to be the kid that talks about how, oh, I was abused as a child. Um, That's just not what I have planned for you know, my life as an adult. Um, I'm going to stand on my own. I'm not going to be a statistic. I choose not to live as if, you know, they've ruined my whole life. So in that year, I was able to forgive. But what I didn't understand was that in order to forgive, I had to feel all of the things that I hadn't felt from my childhood. So when I say I was not a crier, I became a crier. And I started to cry at absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, so (laughs) I remember the first year that I had gone home, um, for a holiday, my abuser was there and my mother was there and all of the things. And I remember thinking, I'm going to tell him that I forgive him and I was like, I forgive you for everything that you did. And he was like, I didn't do anything to you. This was way better than I had it as a kid. You should be grateful. And I was like,
1: I just don't get it. So,
0: all right, we'll go forward from there. So fast forward to, um, you know, I was a, on staff as a pastor at a church, I was working in um, children's ministry and very much an integral part of like safety pr- procedures and making sure that people had the right verifications and that there were protocols in place so that people would um, protect kids, essentially, you know, all of those mm-hmm. good things. And um, through a strange turn of events, ended up in the business world. Um, Working for Bank of America and um, through a roommate that I was helping through her uh, Bible college. um, We had like a support system where you could like sponsor a person to help cover their costs so that they would be debt free and the whole thing. So I was doing that and uh, she had connected me to this place that um, had a training on uh it was a tip id training called trafficking in persons identification Mm -hmm. and i was like all right well i mean i can go to this training this seems like a good idea right um so i was sitting in this training at you know i think 22 years old or something like that and my mother is sitting right next to me and they're talking about um trafficking and i'm going this is horrible. I can't believe anybody would be trafficked. Mm-hmm. And I remember like this realization that happened where it was like, that can't be trafficking because that's what happened to me. And I wasn't trafficked and I'm not a victim and I'm not going to be a victim. And you can't tell me that I'm a victim. Right. And I don't like, if that's true, then I'm sitting next to my trafficker. Yeah. And just the realization of that all happening at once was just like, it was um, like my brain was broken, <laughs> truly. So at the time, I was like, okay, well, my story wasn't so bad because, you know, I wasn't sold to other people, and I wasn't, you know, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, and You know, I I really chose this because I really wanted to protect my siblings, so this was my fault anyway, um, because, you know my mom was sick all the time and she just couldn't do anything else. So this was really the only option. And, you know, other people had it way worse. So really um, I should just be grateful that it happened to me and I can confirm that it didn't happen to my sister and it didn't happen to my younger brother. And it wasn't happening to, you know, my niece and nephew or all these other people. Right. So I justified it in my brain and it took me, Several years to understand I was fully professional fully supporting myself but I it was probably four or five years after where I was fully supporting myself that I realized like I could buy clothes that I wanted just because I had the money like when you talk about brainwashing when you're talking about these mindset things it's like That's how brainwashed I was because I was the one as a kid that had to decide if somebody got something who wasn't going to get something else. So I had to decide if they're going to get new jeans, then they can't have shoes. And, um, so I just gave away all my money all the time. I was like, here, I have extra. So whoever needs it has to have it. And you know, that too is, probably just as toxic as the other stuff but um there's a lot of healing that i had to go through and i was able to be in a place that um really encouraged that healing and taking that time and knew how to handle the type of trauma that i'd been through and really walked me through consistently going after um true restoration of those things so uh after being able to get connected there for the first time in my life, I didn't have nightmares at night. I went from only being able to sleep three hours a night to being able to sleep fully for eight hours.
1: Um, That's can be life-changing.
0: It's life-changing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's why when people are like, are you a good sleeper? I'm like, I'm a good sleeper.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: good at this. <laughs> you know, because you want a healthy amount of sleep, not a depressed amount of sleep where you're like, yeah. I can't get out of bed. No, not like that. Um. I was able to, you know, start working with other nations and I was able to, um, just work with the restoration process of others. And it would be interesting how dealing with their story would help me recognize something that I was like, oh, that's not healed yet. I need to, Mm -hmm. there's a flag there of, I need to remind myself to go back and work on that place. Um, but, it was truly not where I expected to be, not the work that I expected to be doing. I was working uh, professionally in order to support being able to do the work with fighting human trafficking. And um, if I hadn't have gone there, I would have never met you. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I really, I really am grateful for the people that were running ahead of the curve and recognizing the trafficking that's happened and at the time I thought my story was very unique and that it didn't happen that way and that it was only people in Thailand in you know the red light districts and that were mm-hmm. in the the Netherlands where you know they have the you know, the red light districts or right. you know they were being kept in cages or they were you know being kidnapped and it's like I wasn't kidnapped I still went to school. I still got good grades. I was still active in my church. I, you know, all of those things that were happening, like, I was still present. I had friends and, you know, people knew me. So when I finally was able to start sharing what was going on, people were so shocked because they were like, but you're so responsible. And, you know, I would, I was um, talking to this one guy and he's like, I don't understand how you're so well adjusted for all of the trauma that happened to you. And at the time I was like, well, why wouldn't I be well adjusted? Right. (laughs) You know, so anyways, it was, I think,
1: um, yeah, it's a survival mechanism being well adjusted and that you could have some sense of normalcy when this stuff wasn't
0: right. And I do think that there was some disassociation in there that I didn't realize until a lot later, Um, and as crazy as it is, like, you believe the stories that you're told when you're a kid, you know, here I am now, my age, I realized this year that my mom was an addict, and that's why we had to stay. Yeah, like, it just that, you know, all the all the bubbles were there, all the connectors. Just never occurred to me that the reason that we had to stay was because that was her source. And without the source, it would get worse, and not for me and for her. And it was like, I just never put two and two together. So it's amazing what your brains will do to protect you so that you can keep going, so you can keep showing up as a person. And, um, but yeah. I ended up finding out that 75% of trafficking happens by a family member or an intimate partner. Yeah,
1: that's
0: true. So my story is more common than we yeah. think.
1: Yeah. You are not alone. Thank you for sharing your story. And uh, yeah, we all need to realize how interconnected we are. Mm-hmm. and that you know we we don't have to deal with these things by ourselves we can connect with others even if even if it's someone who doesn't understand they can sympathize they can take care they can be a listening ear and that's why it's so important for all of us to work together to and the human trafficking in all its forms
0: which is many many yes well and I will say too like throughout my situation there were adults that that loved me well enough that that made me safe as much as they could and they showed up in little things in recognizing me as a person in um building relationships and teaching me to pray and things like that Mm -hmm. that they just took a moment to recognize this kid who is so hungry for authentic connection so true and they did and I think that those things were those pieces that I needed to keep going Mm -hmm. Yeah. all
1: right thank you Zorna I'm gonna transition to Q&A time take a little bit and uh I know we've talked a long time. You're probably ready for a break, but we'll do a few Q&A. Okay. (laughs) Um, So first I want to ask, what is one hard experience you walked through that seemed insurmountable at the time?
0: I remember probably about the age of 14. I remember thinking, I'm never getting out of this. I couldn't see how I was gonna get out of it, Mm -hmm. at least until my brother was 18. And I remember thinking, is there really hope that I'm gonna end up out of this situation without ending up pregnant? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I just didn't think. That was going to be possible for me. and I had been told all of my life, like by all kinds of people in the family, they're like, if you're not pregnant by 15, just like your mama, we can't we won't be so shocked. And it was like, That's such an
1: odd thing to say but, uh, I think it's I weird.
0: <laughs> no, it is, it is weird. And I remember thinking, I'll show you, I will not be one of those people. I will mm-hmm. not be pregnant at 15 years old. Right. and, um, and I wasn't, but it is definitely by the grace of God, <laughs> definitely by the grace of God. That's
1: good. Um, so you shared a little bit, but how did your past experience connect you to your work in fighting human trafficking?
0: Um, I think really Like personally, uh, I struggled with sharing my story or talking about what happened to me because I have um, family members that are involved in this and and I love them and they're not like I'm not here to put people on blast like I'm not here to disparage what happened to them so it kept me silent. Because I didn't want to blow up their lives and to have them have to deal with the fallout of those things, and what I found was that there are a lot of survivors that have similar situations because my story is more common than the type of story that happens in like the movie taken All right so what I found was there have to be people like me that stand up and share what's going on and what what happened behind closed doors because I find people all the time, they're like, oh, well, I didn't realize it was trafficking. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. There wasn't language about that. That wasn't a common thing. And I mean, there are families that it's so common in that they're like, oh, now you're a woman because you've been assaulted by a family member. Like that, that is so common in their, their mm -hmm. family that everyone in their family has been assaulted. And I want to change that. I want that to not be the norm. I want it to be a place where we really can end trafficking in our lifetime. So it's made me have to be brave and to stand up to those things in my head that's like, oh, well, you're just doing this for attention. Because that's what I was told when I was a kid. Anytime I was like, this is happening and it's not okay. And they're like, you're so dramatic. You just always want everyone to pay attention to you. And I'm like, uh, actually the opposite. Thanks. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and how old were you when it first became this situation?
0: It was somewhere between the age of nine and 10. I'm not, really young. I don't have specific understanding of like I was very intentional not to look at calendars when things happened because I remember even as a little kid I was like I'm not having a memorial in my brain where this date is forever ruined for me right so I didn't look at calendars I didn't pay attention to holidays like I really was like numb and numbed out and that numbing which you can't live from being numb, right? But at the time, it is absolutely what I needed to survive. And, you know, there was trauma happening. So your brain is like, we can be numb. We can do this. (laughs) Yeah. So.
1: Are your siblings aware of how protective you were over them?
0: Um. I don't think so I, I remember so my older brother is the one who really was our main caregiver for me and my sister when I was very young and I remember when my brother left that my mom talked about how much he hated us and that's why he left because he didn't love us anymore and um, he had never really loved us and that we were um, We were a burden that he just didn't want to deal with anymore. And that's why he left, because he didn't love us and we were unlovable. Oh, my goodness. And um, remember, she's fighting her own demons. So. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I internalized that so much. And it wasn't until my brother was able to get access to us again much older, right? Because we were children. We were children, and he'd been kicked out of the house, and he, like, kind of set us straight where, but I mean, at that point, I was already in the midst of everything that was going on. And he's like, I've always loved you guys. I never didn't love you guys. Got kicked out of the house. This is how it happened. But at that time, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's what's going to happen to me because this is how mom handles people that are going to leave. Yeah. So as soon as she can't get what she needs out of us that's going to be the case. So I remember I had to make sure that my brother knew how to feed himself. And so from the time he was three or four, I was like, you have to be able to get your own food. You have to as like, so I taught him how to make simple foods. And I remember telling him every day, I was like, I love you more than life itself. And if you don't know that I love you more than life itself, it doesn't matter what anybody else tells you, you need to know that I love you more than life itself. And I would pray over him and, and all kinds of things. And the same for my sister, but I think it was different because she was my age.
1: Yeah, she was close. Yeah. yeah. So, um I did want to ask,
0: was there,
1: and you did share a couple of things that so maybe speak into this, but was there a specific instance that gave you hope that this isn't it? This is not going to be my whole life. um.
0: I had applied to two schools and one school was close and one school was farther away, like across the country. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had went into the director and the director was related to the pastor who had gotten me out of the situation. Okay. And he said, I'm going to make it look like you aren't qualified to be here. So that you don't have the choice to stay close, he goes, because I really believe the best thing for you would be for you to be across the country to be able to heal and to have time to heal. And I was so grateful for that because I knew that if I was accepted into the program that was close to my house, that I would be expected to live at home and to Mm -hmm. still be in the situation that I was in. And I was very grateful that he saw what was going on Mm -hmm. and allowed me the opportunity to be in the the program that was further away. Yes.
1: So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Well, thank you, Zona. And uh, I think this has gone really well. (laughs)